Okay, um, so we have, I think, a very important conversation that we're going to have today um, as the message that comes from Jesus and his word today. Um, Bill McCurin is one of our elders. You know, most of you know him. He's preached for us, you know, so many times over the years. Um, during this time, I don't know how you have felt, but I know for me personally, I have felt like the ground underneath me has been upset and disheveled, like someone's ripped the rug out from under me. And it's been really challenging for me to even know where to stand. Um, and so as elders, as elder advisors, as a staff, we've been trying to pray and to process and to seek our Father in heaven and our Savior Jesus for direction. There are so many things that are being said. There are so many issues. There are so many questions. There are so many um, arguments and controversies that are in this space that it's been challenging, at least for me to know, again, like what is it that God would want us to say? You know, where is Jesus in the midst of all of this? And so... You know, I've, I've, re I've reached out to Bill this week and we began a set of conversations. We've been talking and praying all week long. And um, ultimately in our conversations, it led to um, me trying to better understand and uh, understand where, you know, where Bill is and his perspective. And I asked him if he'd be willing to share with us some of his perspective and where he has, like both his personal experiences and then where he's seen Jesus um, in the midst of uh, his life and his experiences, and he is, he's been gracious to share with us. Um, and so um, Bill and I have been sending questions back and forth. He's done quite a bit of preparation, um, as, he, as he always does. And, um, and so, Bill, thank you. Thanks for being willing to share with us. I know that some of, the, some of this is still fresh and raw, but, um, but we're really grateful for you, for Dana, for your leadership in our church. Um, and, uh, and I guess, I don't know, I, I would love, could you pray for us maybe as we start? Certainly. Father, you are our God. You are one God, one spirit, one love, one truth. And you have willfully, lovingly adopted into your family the forgotten, the lost, the hurting, the wounded, the unloved and the unlovely, the black and the white and the brown, regardless of skin color, nationality, or anything else. So great is your love that you are not a respecter of persons. You open up your divine arms and sweep into your embrace peoples of all type. And we are so grateful that you look down upon those whom you have created with the intent to save. Because you did not have to do that. You could have saved us and said, okay, now you're on your own. But you did not, even to the point of dying on the cross for us. And how often, God, we forget that there is only one God and you are creating your family for your son. Give us a, a greater understanding of your plan for our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, so Bill, it's, 
it's challenging to know exactly where to start. And so in the questions though that you and I talked about, like my first question is, could you share with us um, some of your own, just your personal experiences of, of racism? Uh, yes, and of course, these are my experiences. I'm, I'm not here as a spokesperson for black people. I'm not speaking on behalf of the black community. I'm speaking as a black man who has grown up here. And I'll just give you a, a few vignettes, uh, very brief. I remember my mother wanted to give me a celebration on my 10th birthday, and we were going to go to a special beach in Chicago. We took uh, the train, then the subway, and then another train to get to this beach. The train ran down. It was one of those electrified trains. Mm -hmm and it ran down the center of the road. And we got off in the center of the road, and it's time so that when it arrives, the traffic stops. We got out of the, uh, the, the train, and by the time we got to the corner, we were surrounded by a mob of young white men, faces filled with hate, and told us we, had, we could not come to their beach. The beach was only a block away. You could see it from the corner. And a policeman came up to me and very respectfully us and said, you, re you really need to get back on the, that train because this was its terminus. And it went to the corner, turned around like in San Francisco and said, you need to go back. And, uh, and we realized we needed to go back. Um, when I went to Dartmouth College, graduating in 1969, I had the honor of competing for Rhodes Scholarship. I was one of the finalists, uh, eventually won the scholarship, but the final tests and interviews were in Boston. And um, we were supposed to be at one high-rise business building at a certain time. I was so excited. I got there 30 minutes early. And when I walked in, they thought I was the bartender and started instructing me on how to pour drinks. When I was a lawyer in San Diego, I was a partner at what was then Great Cary Ames and Fry. Went downtown to one of the best known haberdasheries at the time to buy a suit. Walked in, took the elevator up. A guy met me at the elevator, one of the, uh, well, the salesperson, and told me they did not have suits for my size. Um, uh, when, um, when Dana and I go driving, uh, we do not drive in rural areas. We just do not feel safe doing that. Uh, for example, we would not drive in Lakeside in California until recently uh, because uh, they have a lot of people with, uh, or not a lot. It was one of the sites of the, the local clan or uh, uh, a, um, a group that purposed uh, to hate black people. Uh, Skyler was on a rowing club in Mission Beach, and in 2000, one of the, Skyler's our daughter, and uh, one of the young men on one of the teams was just hurling racial epithets at her. We weren't there, because we, we took her to be part of the, the team, and. Uh, she went to the coach and he told her, well, you deal with it. And so we just dropped out of the program. Um, uh, so those are just 
some just to give you a feel. And, and when we first moved here, if Dana was going to a nice restaurant with her friends, I would call in advance and say, look, my wife is coming. She's African-American. This is what she's wearing. And I want to make sure you treat her well. Do you understand? And they would say, well, yes, sir. So, Bill, I think you've talked to me about that the, the term racism isn't necessarily the most helpful term. And so can I ask you, like, what, what is systemic negative racial attitude? So racism is really um, a belief that a people, as a people, are inferior um, and um, deserve to be subjugated, or exterminated. So slavery in the South, racism. Um, Jews in Germany, racism. The Tutsis in Rwanda and what the Hutus did to them, racism. With systematic discrimination with the force of the state behind it. Um, we don't have that per se in the United States at this point. Most of the laws not all, but most of the laws forbid uh, violence on the basis of race, religion, creed, nationality. Uh, most of the laws uh, make it a punishable crime. But uh, racial attitudes, negative racial attitudes persist. And so systemic racism grows in our country, grew out of slavery in the South, uh, where it, there was racism that was a deliberate policy of subjugating blacks and exterminating blacks who would not go along with the program, and it was supported by state power. That is systemic racism. So it was illegal for blacks to get an education, to travel without their master's um, uh, permission to marry whom they wanted to marry. Um, so, with and and when our nation was formed uh, as a nation, uh, slavery was already in the United States by almost hundred years. Okay, and um, with the Revolutionary War, there was a break between the North and the South that was beginning because most of the slavery was concentrated in the Southern states and Virginia was the largest and wealthiest state at the time. And so there were a system of laws in the South to make sure that slavery persisted and grew. And uh, after the... So when the country was formed... When the was, country they was made formed... to make sure that this continued, especially in the South. Exactly. Okay. And, and part of the argument in fighting the Revolutionary War was that if Britain took over, um, they would abolish slavery in the South. And that was one of the ways Britain tried to win by telling, sending out the message to black slaves that if you revolt and join the British Army and we win, we will abolish slavery in the United States. So uh, part of the deal in the Revolutionary War was that the slave states would be allowed to continue as slave states once the Revolutionary War was over and the country was victorious. 
So when um, the uh, Declaration of Independence was written by Thomas Jefferson, and when eventually we had the Constitution which supplanted the Articles of Confederation, part of the deal was that the slave states would be left alone. And it was a, they didn't want to become a nation. There was a great tension. Uh, we wanted to be 13 individual colonies run by the local states so we can do what we want to do. Um, the, the, the new constitution led by um, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and others to create a powerful central government so that we could be a nation with a strong central government and laws that affected everybody in order, because without that, they argue, French would come back and take over, the British would come back and take over, we'd have nothing to protect. Divided, yeah, divided we fall. Right? Divided we fall. Yeah, yeah. And it was, a, it was a hard argument, but it prevailed. Ironically, the first state to vote in favor of the Constitution was South Carolina, a slave-owning state, owning state. It was also the first state to vote to succeed from the Union about 100 years later because there was a push from the North to abolish slavery. Abraham Lincoln tried to broker a deal with the South. We will let slavery persist, but it cannot expand beyond the existing states. So it sounds like what you're saying, Bill, and not to, I mean, to yes. interrupt, just to make sure we, um, like, the, like, what I'm feeling, the weight of what I'm feeling, you say, is that in our country, there were commitments to be for slavery in our country from its inception. Yes. And then there was accommodations made so that it could continue in order to maintain the unity of the nation yes. as a whole. And so this is reminding me of, like in the past, we've talked about generational sins, how the sins of parents end up being you know, visited down on the children, that we end up growing up in an environment and duplicating the sins of our parents. And what you're describing is like that, that our country has continued the sinfulness of slavery and the sinfulness of racism that began at its inception. Let me read a brief quote from just part of Abraham Lincoln's inaugural, second inaugural address, where he was explaining to the public where we are now, which was kind of in the middle of the Civil War. He said, one-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents, the Confederacy, would rend the Union even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. So yeah. that was, so, so eventually, I mean, we, the, the, sec, the, uh, the uh, Civil War was won, the bloodiest war in American history. Now, um, so it really, they developed in, a, in America a Cain and Abel situation. Mm. Um, and this is a narrative that will go throughout the world. There's always a Cain and there's always an Abel. 
uh, and the slave owners and perpetuators of slavery were Cain. And, and black people were able, in the sense that Cain said, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm going to subjugate you and kill you. Well, of course, slavery ceased. Racism did not cease with it. Um, eventually, through the civil rights movement, particularly the bills in 1964-65, it was the first really strong civil rights act, and it abolished slavery. Of course, the 13th Amendment had done that earlier, but in, in the South, there, was, there were systemic efforts to deny blacks the vote, access to education, access to proper health care. Eventually, that wore down to the point that today there are very few laws supporting uh, racial uh, segregation or denigration. Uh, but the cultural influence of slavery persists so that... Um, so let me, let me yes. ask the question then. Um, so it persists. So we have these systemic negative racial attitudes can you give us some examples, maybe, of some of those that we that are hard to recognize? Yeah, and this is a really a frustration for for black people because many whites think the problem is done with. I mean, blacks go to the polls and vote. So George Floyd is for us as a people a prime example of this. This police officer. Um, kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds while he was pleading uh, to just be able to breathe. There were two or three other officers with him. That officer felt immune from retribution. And I'm not talking about personal retribution. I'm talking about from his... From his his superiors and his colleagues, the other so the other colleagues didn't stop him. They watched while this man pleaded. If it had not been videotaped, the narrative would have been that George Floyd was resisting arrest, and in order to protect himself, the police officer did what he did. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what happened in the Rodney King case in Los Angeles. They beat the man while he was, he was already subdued. So uh, Armand Aubrey was jogging through an upscale neighborhood in Atlanta not too long ago, maybe a month or a couple of months ago. A father and his son, and the father was a retired police officer, saw this black man running. That was their characterization. He was not jogging. jogging. Not jogging yeah. So, and, and they accost him and demand, he explained what's he doing to me because they'd heard there were burglaries in the neighborhood. So they assumed that a black man jogging in a well-to-do neighborhood was there inappropriately and was a thief. And they wound up uh, shooting him with a shotgun. And the narrative was self-defense. They were not charged for two months. There had to be a public outcry. So when, when black people say police brutality exists, 
And it's not. Why do people think we're exaggerating? They think we're making it up and we're complaining as usual. And when my boys were young, I instructed them and indeed pleaded with them that if a police officer stops you for whatever reason, you keep your hands on the steering wheel, you do not say anything smart alecky to them. But dad, what if they're wrong? Especially if they're wrong. You keep your hands on the steering and it's yes sir, no sir, because I wanted to make sure they would not be shot. Um, so this, I don't, I don't imagine that there's any black father my age who has not had that conversation with his son. And in the, in the process, um, if I would say that to my white friends, they would say, oh, that's so, that's so unrealistic. That, that doesn't happen. And we say, oh, okay. Uh, I don't try to argue the point with them. Their reality is so different. Let me give you a couple of examples, real examples. So I have a friend, he's a, a, a lawyer, white, wonderful guy. I really like him. And um, he comes from uh, South Dakota. And he decided he wanted to earn some money. He saw a friend of his who was selling um, kitchenware, pots, pans, fancy plates. And, he, and his target was young, single white women because their desire would be to start a household. This was a way to get, get that first jump. And he, his friend said, come with me. And my friend said, okay. And then he went with them and he watched what the guy was doing and he said, I can do that. And he did. And he started making more money than his father. Going through rural South Dakota, door to door, no black man would ever do that. It would never occur to us to do that. We know, at first, there would not have been the role model. There would have not first have been the person that said, oh, I, can, I see what you're doing. I can do that. That person doesn't seldom exist in our community. But we wouldn't have gone into most places and done that. Another story. We have a group of lawyers in San Diego, and these are outstanding lawyers and fine men. And they are uh, very successful. And one of their common routines was to sneak into the Super Bowl every year. They, they would study how to do it. And because they're white and well-dressed, and they always succeeded. No black person would ever think of doing that. And if you tried it, you would never make it. Things may be a little different today, but if we're talking about something as recently as 15 years ago. We, we just would not do that. When, when I grew up, black people, it was the view, could play football, but they didn't have the intelligence to be quarterbacks. Very common. Well, now... In the SEC, a large number of the quarterbacks are black. In the pros, a large number of the quarterbacks are black. Mm. Uh, so uh, things are changing. Uh, there are no systemic laws that hold us down. But the cultural negative racial attitudes persist in varying degrees of strength. So one recent example was just a couple of months ago. 
a young man named Christian Cooper is in Central Park, and he's a birder, takes pictures of birds. A white woman is there with her dog, and the signs say the dog must be on a leash. So he says very respectfully, Madam, you need to put your dog on a leash. And she starts accusing him of threatening her. He said, ma'am, I just, she said, I'm going to call the police. He said, please call the police. And so he started videotaping it on his phone. And she calls the police, and she says repeatedly and falsely, an African-American man is threatening me and intimidating me. I'm in such and such an area of Central Park. Fortunately, it was videotaped. But let me tell you, 20 years ago, he might have been apprehended and beaten to death. Now, she was fired from her, from her job. She was the manager of a major corporation in New York. If you had asked her the week before, do you have negative racial attitudes toward black? It's absolutely not. She would have been offended at the thought, but her pride was struck by this man who was black telling her respectfully to leash her dog. And what was the first thing out of her mouth was to accuse him of intimidation and threats and calling the police, police and repeatedly saying, an African-American man, an African, because it's the buzzword. I've heard too that, I mean, this woman's been canceled, you know, social media has really taken her to task and she's been fired, like you said. I've heard that, that Christian actually has stated that he wished that she hadn't lost her job. Yeah. You know, uh, in a gracious response. Yeah, uh, and that is, uh, I admire him for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Bill, do you, um, so with all that's going on right now, like how do you, how do you process what's happening f from a biblical point of view? Okay, and that's a, a great question. And so I process this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't know any other way of processing it now as a Christian. I am a sinner who has been saved by grace, by, by God, who, who loves me not because I'm black and not despite I'm black. He just loves me. I, I find that amazing. Um, so I also understand biblically that diversity is part of God's plan to bring men to himself. So we regard it as a problem. God says it's a plan. We know that from Genesis 11 when, uh, with the Tower of Babel. There was, first of all, let me say that race doesn't appear in the Bible. That's a human construct. The only race that's in the Bible is the human race. Right? There's no other race. So at the Tower of Babel, they were all one people and all one language. And God looks down at them and says, you know, they think they can do anything. This is not in our eternal benefit as men to think that we can live and succeed without God. So God says, I'm going to destroy the, uh, the tower and I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, um, confuse their languages. And so they went away talking different languages and that's what developed. Well, that was his divine plan because his goal 
is to get people to turn to Jesus and depend on him alone. Not on a country, not on a political party, not on a race, but on him alone. And when Paul was in um, um, Athens at the Mars Hill uh, in Acts 17, he was telling the Athenians that God made all men from one man. Um, yeah, 26 through 28. Yeah. Let me read it. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from either one of us, from any of us, for we live in him, we live and move and have our being. So, so God's plan is that we would come to Jesus. And he has made you white, me black, somebody else. What are you? <laughs> Just a good looking guy. Uh, he looks like he's Samoan or something. Good looking guy. He, he determined my race, the city I would live in, the parents I would have, the language I would, would speak for one purpose. One purpose that we would come to know Jesus. So that being, that being his divine goal, how do I fit in with that? I am, I am purposed as a Christian to obey the scripture to be not a respecter of persons. Now, racism and negative racial attitudes are just sin. Sin is endemic to the human condition. I don't believe that most people in the United States are racist, as I've defined it. I believe that many people in the United States have negative racial attitudes, some of which they are aware of, and some of which they don't even know, because they're not around black people enough to, to, to actually have to confront the issue. But in, in 2 Corinthians 5, there's this great verse that's often quoted, and I think it's generally taken out of context, not, not inappropriately. Uh, let me read it. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 16 to 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Mm. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, and this is the verse that everybody's familiar with, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you hear that? He gave us the word of reconciliation in order to fulfill the ministry of reconciliation. Not counting men's trespasses. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses of men against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just think of that. Uh, And so that's part of how I process it, but that's also the obligation of every single Christian. We cannot regard anybody after the flesh anymore. We have not the right to do that. And, And God uses us to bring people to Christ and implore. It's like almost getting down on your knees and saying, please come to Christ. You can't do that with your knee on his neck. You can't do that if, if you call him the N-word. You can't do that if you're afraid of him or her. You can only do that if Christ's love goes through you and out to that person. I just find it remarkable that God would do that. And in this Roman time, the ambassadorship was a very elevated position. Rome was divided into what was under the control of the Senate. Those were the subdued nations. And the wild nations were under the throne of, under the control of the emperor. And the emperor would designate an ambassador whose role was to go to the hostile territories with just a ceremonial force, you know, 100 men. Their lives were in danger. They, they could be wiped out. And their purpose was to go to the hostile nations and woo them into the kingdom of Rome. Persuade them of the benefits of being part of the Roman Empire. So we are ambassadors. Those of us who are broken and wounded and hurting and are inadequate, doesn't make any difference. He has appointed each and every one of us as an ambassador to go out into the world, to actively go out and tell people about Jesus Christ. We cannot do that if we have negative racial attitudes. So, Bill, I think we just have maybe a minute or two left. Um, How would you encourage us, like as a church, like what can we do as individuals or as a church, maybe to make a difference at a time like this? Well, um, we must pray the second great commandments into, into our hearts, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when the lawyer tried to sort of verbally fight with Jesus, who is my neighbor. Yeah, try to get out of it. Try, right? to, try to get out I'm of it. Loving my neighbors, but not those people. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we make a point of trying to invite people to our home who don't look like us. When our kids were growing up, we had books that showed all the races of the people. And we would regularly go through that book and just say, oh, aren't they beautiful? And they might have a ring in their nose or ring in their ears or, or like in India, those Things paint. So aren't they beautiful? You introduce your children. Since it all starts at the top. In the church, it starts in the leadership. You want a diverse church, you got to have diverse leadership. In your home, if you want to teach people how to welcome and be and honor all men, they've got to see you do it. 
You bring them to your home. You read books to them. Um, uh, and you make sure that in, in your sphere of influence, one is the family, one is your church, one is your workplace, you simply are, won't tolerate anything from yourself other than the love of God going through you. And if you see somebody making a joke against women or a joke against Hispanics or a joke against blacks, you stop them. You say, you know what? I just, I just don't think that's right. And you don't have to beat a drum. You could even take that person out to lunch privately and pull them aside and say, you know, I know you said this, but, but let me tell you what God has done for me. It is a spiritual issue, not a political issue. For me, um, I, I, uh, Berkeley Gomez is a member of our church. Her mother did something when Berkeley was young that moves me deeply. When her mother wanted to go and minister to people who didn't look like them, she brought Berkeley with her. She caused Berkeley to see. And when you do that, people don't become types. They become people. They change from being one of them to one of us. And I'm not saying try to make black people as though they were white. Right, right. You, you treat them. There's those Negro hymn, they call me everything but a child of God. We want to call everybody the child of God. They call me every name but a child of God. You think of everybody as a child of God, and he has sent you as an ambassador to that person to show them that his son died on the cross for them. Um, well, sure, I feel like we could go on and on and on. Um, friends, we're just starting this conversation. Um, and uh, if, if you have questions that you would like to hear us answer, like if you have questions, whether it's about racism or systemic negative attitudes, if you have questions about things political, like what does the Bible have to say about all these things, we would love to hear your questions. We would love for you to share them with us. You can put them in the Facebook chat if you want to do that. If you want to send them, you can direct message us um, on social media. If you want to send us an email, you can send it to info at harborcity.church. Um, and like we're open to extending this conversation in a midweek event. Uh, we could write up some answers to questions if that's the, I mean, so send us your questions. Um, send us the topics that you would want us to address in this space. Um, and we'll take that information. We'll figure out the right way to respond back and continue to communicate with the church. But I hope that, um, I hope that this continues to open your eyes to seeing someone else's reality. Um, that maybe helps you understand more of what is going on inside that's producing the kinds of responses that we're seeing in these last weeks. Um, and so again, send us, if you've got questions, send us, the, send us those questions and, um, and we'll continue the conversation. I hope that in your life groups you continue this conversation 
um, and continue to find ways to, yeah, to see people the way that God does. Um, so Bill, thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, would you pray for us as a church? Lord God, you promised your disciples that you would build your church. We are so grateful that you did not put that in our hands. But you, in sovereign love, are building your church. And you will bring in it people from all nations, tongues, cultures. The diversity will glorify who you are. You have already appointed us to be your ambassadors. Give us a desire to be your ambassador. Send us out with a love in our hearts that is superhuman. It is not natural to us. Send us your spirit that we would see people as you see them and that you would put in our hearts a love for people because they are your creation. We ask you to do this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.